starting in verse 19. We'll pray for the Spirit's guidance. Our Lord and our God, as we enter into your book of life, I just pray that you give us ears to hear, hearts to understand, and the courage to do what you would have us do in this present age. Lord, guide my lips as I do this sermon. Give me discernment. Again, give us ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, just a little background because I haven't been up here in a while. They've been, there was a big dispute in Jerusalem, or the Jerusalem church, the new church. Some of the sect of the Pharisees, the new Christians, they were called believers. They wanted the Gentiles to be circumcised and follow the laws of Moses, or else they said they would not be saved. It was part of salvation. So this is the response from the church in Acts 15, 19. And this is James, the brother of Jesus. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and for what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is ready every Sabbath in the synagogues, or read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders, with the whole church, to choose men from among them, to send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. We'll just read that far. You may be seated. We cover the rest as we go through the sermon. Again, there was this dispute, and it was a justifiable dispute. And as we look at this, they're going to come to a conclusion on this issue, but the issue still doesn't die, because later on, Paul, in some of his writings, he still is addressing these things. But he, what's important is Paul calls it another gospel, a false gospel. That's how big this was, because they were saying it wasn't by grace alone that you're saved. You're only saved by grace and then following the laws of Moses, so grace and works. So it's obvious it was another gospel. It was not the true gospel. So these Pharisees, a sect of the Pharisees who became believers, wanted the Gentiles to be circumcised and also to follow the customs of Moses. It tells us, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And again, later on, they say, and you have to follow all the laws of Moses. So in order to resolve this dispute, there was a council called in Jerusalem of the elders the leaders of the church, to address this, which is a good thing. There will be disputes in churches. There will be disputes in denominations. What's important here is they address it. And they address it quickly. I'm impressed that they addressed it this quick because travel was hard at that time. And I vented my frustration before about our denomination where there's clear sin and it's been dragging on for four or five years, and they don't have any disciplinary actions or address it. 
It's important that sin in the family, in churches, denominations must be addressed. You know, it goes right back to that. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Even if it's rebuking brothers and sisters in the Lord. It's important that it's done in a timely manner. It says, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn from God. So this is their conclusion, and we're going to look at these conclusions. Because as we look at them, we have to wonder, are some of these for us today yet? Are these just for that time period? So let's look at the first one. Abstain from things polluted by idols. We have to understand the culture at that time. Like the Jews, many of these false religions sacrificed animals to their gods. You know, we saw it when they wanted to make Paul and I think it was Barnabas, you know, they thought they were gods walking among them. And they brought two bulls that they wanted to sacrifice to them. There was a lot of that going on. But we all know that these gods, they can't chew the meat. They're made of wood, stone, marble, whatever. But really, they don't exist. They're idols that Satan puts in, into the minds of people that they worship them. But because, you know, they're, here they're sacrificing animals. I mean, let's just say they were sacrificing two of these bulls. You know, and a bull can weigh up to 2,000 pounds. So even if these were bullocks, smaller ones than 1,000 pounds, you're looking at probably five or 600 pounds of meat from each of these animals. And like I say, they, they sacrifice different animals. So what they did is they didn't want that meat to go to waste. It's a good commodity, so they would sell it. Sell it at the market. You know, maybe they even charged a premium because it was meat offered to the gods. I don't know. But we do know as the Jews looked at this with disdain, this practice. And they felt they should abstain from having to eat this meat that was used for the sacrifices for idols. And I think it was, as the commentators believe in this case, it was to keep unity in the church. To keep unity in the church. You know, we have to be sensitive to brothers and sisters in the Lord who aren't as mature in our actions that we don't cause them to grieve or to hinder their growth. Again, many commentators think that this was an advisory decree. That it was for this particular time they wanted unity in the church because the Gentiles... And the Jews came from such different backgrounds that they didn't want this eating of the meat sacrificed to idols. 
to put a rift in between them. And I have to agree with them here on this, that this was an advisory. And I agree with it because in 1 Corinthians, Paul addresses this very subject again. It tells us 1 Corinthians 8, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something he does not know, he ought to know. But if he, anyone loves God, he is known by God. So what he's saying is, basically, as we go forward in our Christian walk, you know, the Bible tells us that God will mature all of us, but we start from a starting place. And some believers are more mature, some are less mature. But we're all in the church, we all have to work together, and we have to have unity. And the more mature brothers have to be sensitive to the immature brothers. Because some people, depending on their background, will feel that some things are sin. They're forbidden by God. But that's, it's based on their history, their background, their walk in life, not based on solid scripture. That is completely contrary to God's law. And in this case, the eating meats offered to idols. You know, and if the stronger believer understands that this is not sin, but if he does go and eat the meat in front of a believer who thinks it's sin, it will hinder his growth. Paul explains more. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed are many gods, a small g, and many lords. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through him are all things and through whom we exist. Paul is explaining the truth of God is that there's one God. All these other gods are just fake. They're stolen wood, statues. But men may perceive them as gods, and that's the problem. Even though they're fake, false, powerless, some men feel that these gods have power. I gave the example of when I'd go down to Mexico, the Mayan culture, I'd talk to people about religion. Heavy Catholic area, but they said the Catholicism was the marrying and burying religion. They said many people had altars to the Mayan gods. That was their everyday gods that they prayed to. But see, that's been passed on for generation and generation. It's hard to let go. But these are fake gods, no power. Then Paul goes on further in verse 7. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. So what he's saying, the weaker brothers... Those who aren't mature in the faith sometimes understand in their minds that it's sin, it's terrible to eat this meat, and they feel defiled if they do. So indeed, it's, it's sin to them. They feel like it's sin to them. And they all, the, 
this is the topic being discussed here, the immaturity of believers versus the mature believers. It's sanctification. He's trying to teach us to be sensitive with each other where we stand in the faith. You know, I think it's like all of us when we came to faith. We didn't have everything sorted out. We come with a history, and we may believe certain things, certain things that we've been taught our whole life that may not be against God's law, but we've been taught for our whole lives that it was sin. So as mature brothers and sisters, we must be patient and with gentleness and letting God's word change people's hearts and bring them maturity so that we don't bruise their conscience, we don't damage their walk. I think I told the story several times when I first came to faith. I took a class in Milwaukee, drove there from Watertown to Milwaukee, wanted to learn more about Christianity. And the instructor there, he told me, told the class that when he became a Christian, he doesn't think he ever sinned after that. And for me, I said, man, I'm not going to make this team then if that's the requirement. But he was wrong. We all sin. But it, it damages, a, a, like me at that time, a young believer thinking that, you know, you got to be perfect. And I thought, man, I won't even get home and I'm going to be 10 marks in the hole here, you know. And so, you know, we have to be sensitive, especially when we're, we're respected as an older or, or a more mature Christian. But here Paul tells us, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat. And no better off if we do. And again, he's talking about this food sacrifice to idol. We have idols. We have to keep it in the context. So he's saying the food is neutral. He says it doesn't matter either way. It doesn't matter. The idols are fake. What they're doing is fake. It's, it's beef or whatever, or chicken. Then he continues on. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you when you have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged? If his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols, and so by your knowledge this weak person is destroyed, the brother of whom Christ died. That's pretty strong language. He's saying as mature saints, even though we're doing something lawfully, we can destroy the faith of a weaker person. That is serious business. We can never get caught up in ourselves and not have that sensitivity and that discipline to bring other people up in the faith slowly and at the rate that they can learn and let God's word educate them. And again, we all, when we come to faith, and some of us still cling to things that we think are sin, even though they're not forbidden by God's law. In tw verse 12, it says, Thus sinning against your brother. So Paul is telling us, mature believers, that we are actually sinning 
against the immature believers, even if we're doing something lawfully, if it is destroying their faith or hindering their growth. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. It's important here to learn we do not want to weaken the faith of anybody. We do not want to ridicule people who believe something that may even not go along with the scriptures, but it's been ingrained in their life for so long, it takes the Holy Spirit a while to rub that out of their life, to bring them to the knowledge of the truth. And we must be patient. Patient. Like Paul says, he would never eat meat again if it caused his brother to stumble. Again, we're talking about unity in the church, different believers at different stages in their life in Christianity. You know, some of us may have come into faith, no cards, no drink, no movies, and it can go on and on. You know, we in our own human minds can make up many restrictions thinking that it's pleasing to God, but in reality, we're saved by grace, and we're not adding anything to it. We must seek out the truth, the truth. You know, in 2 Timothy 4, it tells you, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by the appearing of his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort, sounds a lot what I had here, with complete patience and teaching. Complete patience and teaching. We must be patient. We must plant the seeds and let the Holy Spirit ripen the fruit in people's hearts. So in this case, I agree with the commentators that this is an advisory recommendation for a short period of time to bring unity in the church. I don't think we have much food out there for sale offered to idols anyway. So, and The next restriction is and keep from sexual immorality. Now this is a lot easier because this is clearly against the law of God, sexual immorality. And I think they're mentioning this because a lot of these pagan religions at the time, a lot of these religions the Gentiles, the Romans came out of, had pretty much do whatever you want when it comes to sexuality. Kind of a lot like today, if you really think about it. A multitude of sexual sins. And here, it's this, it's, they're reminding them that this is a restriction for believers, all believers. That if you're caught up or if you grew up generations in these sexual practices, they are wrong and they are forbidden once you become a child of God. And it will not be tolerated in the church. This is a complete, clearly clear area that there's no argument, there's no 
compromising. You say, no, these will stop. And, you know, that, that's for us as well. We have to keep our sexual practices in the confines of what God has ordained. Period. And what goes beyond that is sin. And the church should rebuke and exhort and confront it. And now we have a, come to a more complex restriction. What I mean, we have to decide if we're restricted from this as well. And from what has been strangled and from blood. Now, the first case, these two uh, restrictions, I believe, are intertwined. You know, when an animal is strangled, the blood remains inside of it. So in reality, I think this is two forms of the one of the same restriction. Don't drink or eat the blood, and don't eat the flesh with the blood in it. So let's look at some biblical texts for this. You know, in Leviticus 7.26, Moreover, you shall eat no blood whatever, whether of fowl or of animal, or any of your, if any of your dwelling places. Whoever eats any blood, that person shall be cut off from his people. So if you eat blood, you're cut off from your people, the Jewish nation. You're tossed out. Leviticus 17.10 If anyone of the house of Israel or the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Therefore I have said to the people of Israel, No person among you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger who sojourns among you. You know, so the Jewish people and the sojourners that were among the Jewish people, they're strictly permitted to eat blood. Leviticus 19.26, you shall not eat any flesh with the blood in it. That's a strangled animal. So it's clear that it's for the Jewish people and the strangers that were with them at the time. And in Ezekiel 33.23 says, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, the inhabitants of these waste places. This is when God was about to judge the people, and he names their sins. In the land of Israel, keep saying, Abraham was only one man, yet he got possession of the land. But we are many, the land is surely given to us to possess. Therefore say to them, thus says the Lord God, you eat flesh with the blood, and you lift up your eyes to your idols, and shed blood. You, shall you then possess the land? You rely on the sword. You commit abominations. And each of you defiles his neighbor's wife. Shall you then possess the land? Say this to them. Thus says the Lord God. As I live, surely those who are in waste places shall fall by the sword. And whoever is in the open field, I will give to the beast to be devoured. And those who are strongholds and in caves shall die by pestilence. So God is naming eating animals with the blood in them an abomination which is bringing judgment onto the people along with these other abominations. 
So we can see that God takes this very serious. Very serious. His blood is something that God is jealous for. Did you notice that in verse 11 of that one Leviticus text? For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Remember when we went through the sacrificial system, how they were sprinkling blood and pouring blood on the altars, and that surely a symbol of Christ shedding his blood. But we see that God is jealous. Jealous when it comes to blood. So I ask you, are these restrictions for us as well? Or is this just for the Jewish people? Is just a, is, are these an advisory restriction? Many commentators feel that it is. They feel it's given to the Gentiles because of the pagan sacrifices or which were built around blood, maybe strangled animals. So is it for us? That it would offend the Jewish believers if they ate what they were used to eating? Perhaps they liked the stuff with blood in it? Was this a temporary restriction because of the circumstances of the day? Or is it a restriction for us as well? I don't think many of us go around drinking blood. I mean, uh, I suppose blood sausage from the meat market. Most of our foods are properly bled out when they're killed. I know in some cultures, the Maasai, they eat blood. They drain blood out of their cows. Don't kill them. Just take so much, and it's one of their mainstays. Asian markets I've seen where they drink the bloods of snakes, live snakes. They drain it into a glass and drink it. And I think uh, I read about the noodle geese in Watertown that they use some, some people use the goose blood to make stuff. But for the most part, I don't think we're going around drinking blood. But are these restrictions? Are these restrictions for people in these other countries? Now, I was kind of going along with the, the commentators thinking that this was a temporary advisory. But then I came to Genesis 9, which makes me believe this restriction is for all of us and for all the people. You know, God commanded this after the flood before, before there was a called out nation for the Jews. It was for all people. Listen to Genesis 9.1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground, and all the fish in the sea into your hands they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I give you the green plants, I give you everything. So God is being very gracious. He's given us everything to eat. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. 
Again, this was before there was a Jewish nation called out. So I believe, I believe this is a restriction for all times. And that it is for us. Now I may be one of those weaker believers and I may be proven wrong in the future or not. It seems pretty clear from this Genesis passage that we should watch what type of animals we eat and how they're killed. But Paul goes on in verse 21, For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. And what this is telling us is that Moses, the writings of Moses, are our standards. Paul is saying these words are read, they're out there, use them to follow what you do. And I believe that's what I did on this, these verses here. I believe that's what it is. Again, some of the commentators disagree. But I think that Genesis deal, the verse seals the deal. And again, I don't think it pertains too much to us in this nation. But we are a unified body with all believers, so I believe in some parts of the world it definitely does. What we do know is that these decrees went out, and it was a relief to the Gentiles who believed. I don't think they were looking forward to getting circumcised. I don't think they were looking forward to having to keep all these laws of Moses. So verse 22, it says, Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. It seemed good to the apostles and elders. They agreed. There was consensus. They had an issue in the church. They dealt with it. They had a consensus. And they're sending out a decree. This is what you will do. And if you don't do it, there should be church discipline. That's simple. They, used, they sent out with trusted brothers, trusted saints. And those who heard it rejoiced. They rejoiced. They were glad they didn't have the restrictions. They were glad they had clarification. And there was unity in the church because there wasn't division on a sin matter, which this was. And that, again, is why I say I am so frustrated with our denomination where they have a statement on sexuality and they have elders or deacons who are homosexual in office completely against the doctrine, the stated doctrine, which was addressed, and it's been going on for years. So the sin festers, more people are polluted by the sin. It's pathetic in my mind. Sin has to be dealt with in our own lives, in our family lives, our church lives, our nation's well-being is how we rebuke sin. 
With all authority, let no one disregard you. It's not our laws we present, it's God's laws. And they can find those laws clearly written. And I think that's what we have to take away from this message. There will be division, there will be disagreements that must be dealt with in a godly manner, in a timely manner, so that sin doesn't fester. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for this time together, and we just thank you for the early church, the, the pattern, the examples they show that they dealt with sin quickly. And then when there was unity in the church again, the church could build and increase, and their efforts went for saving souls. Lord, teach us to be like that. Teach us to be an example for that. In Jesus' name.